Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Resisting Gilead. It's very exciting. Today is June 4th. The third season is going to premiere tonight, and they are letting loose three episodes at once. It's it's going to be a lot of watching and a lot of podcasting over the next few days. Um, I'm probably going solo for the first three episodes just because there's so much to take in. Um, and it's been a little bit difficult to line up guests, but um, that will change. I've got some other folks from um, my life that I'm going to be talking to about this season, uh, from my podcasting life, my college life, um, my past work life. So some great voices will be um, brought into the mix here. But before we get going with today's episode, uh, I want to talk about the Daily DVR Network. Um, Its host, W. Axel Foley, is someone that helped me get into podcasting. He does a great daily podcast on all sorts of TV and movies that are kind of happening out there in the world. And something exciting he's going to be doing is he's going to be launching kind of a a separate side podcast about this season of Big Little Lies. So please check that out as well. So back to this episode of Resisting Gilead. I recently spoke to another Mount Holyoke College friend of mine, Rima Dial. Um, We talk about all sorts of things, women in power and what they do with it, Uh, some politics and my personal favorite topic. We talked a lot about who is Aunt Lydia. Um, So enjoy this episode. More to come this week. We're off Fast and Furious with um, season three, and it's going to be very exciting. Handmaid's Tale, are you ready? What do you think of this show overall? So um, I was talking to my colleague, Vanessa, about this. And she's like, what's your friend Gina doing? And and I was like explaining the whole podcast thing. But I was like, so Vanessa, have you watched this? She's like, no way in hell. She watched the first two episodes, totally got triggered, totally freaked out. She's like, I don't know how any mom can watch this ever. And I was like, I totally understand. And that was my initial response. But I'm like, hang in there. Stick with like the first half of the first season because it changes. Um, And so I think now having watched all two seasons, it's rather quite brilliant how at least, you know, from the director's perspective and from just the story arc, how we were introduced just through the handmaiden's perspective and then got to see the rest of Gilead and then the interaction of like what other countries looked like still. Um, I thought it was really, it was really interesting when, you know, they make the trip to Canada and then all of a sudden really seeing the contrast of what the U S had become and had devolved into Gilead. Um, but then Canada was still like Canada. Yeah. So, um, that's crazy. And that was really heart wrenching also, um, to see. So if you were living in Gilead, what kind of station do you think you would be assigned? Um, well, I mean, at this point in our lives, I think our options are limited, but right. <laughs> do you think you would be a wife, 
a hand, well, probably not a handmaid, not us, nope. but an aunt, a Martha, a Kano wife. What do you think? You know, I would probably, you know, based on circumstance, I would probably be either a wife or a Martha. But then like thinking through, like I suck at cooking Gina. And I was just thinking about that. I'm like, how funny would that be if I was assigned that role? But like, I would just suck at all of those domestic things that you're supposed to be doing. But I mean, that would be ironic, but that's probably what I think I would end up being. I mean, I could totally see myself having fought the fight and then lost family members uh, along the way. Um, but I'd probably be part of that Martha network that would get the handmaids out to Canada. Yeah, that's, I think that's where I would be too. Um, I mean, whatever role I'd be in, I think I would be trying to work with the resistance. Correct. Yeah. To get people out. Um, I don't know if I could handle being an aunt. Um, no. There'd be no way in hell I'd do that. I mean, then the other question is, would I still be alive, right? Like, I don't know if, and, and it's funny, my sister and I, and, you know, and Bub, we talk about this often. Like, if we see apocalyptic type movies, are we runners? Meaning, like, would we leave the area first or would we stay um, and I think knowing my family, we would have probably left really early to get out of the States. Um, but if we were caught having to stay, we would definitely stay and fight. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I feel like I already have like plan A, plan B, plan C. Correct. If someone yeah. is to get reelected. <laughs> No, absolutely. Well, I mean, and that was the other thing, like when the election came, part of uh, the joke was, well, we can't go home to the Philippines anymore um, because, you know, Duterte is just as bad, if not worse than Trump. Um, and then, you know, we have family in Canada. Would we really go to Canada? So, but mm -hmm. that, that's where we've told Karana that she can go to university in Canada. So we'd have a place to go there. <laughs> That's a good plan. Um, so I'm super intrigued with Aunt Lydia. Um, yep. As evil as she is, I'm curious if you've had any thoughts about her backstory, because that's something we haven't got yet. Right. And then there's that moment where she does share that she did have, she was a godmother, right? And that her godchild had died. It was her nephew. And do you remember, was it like four days old or four weeks old? Or I want to say it was four days. And right. she was very intent on saying it wasn't my fault. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, cause, cause, you know, the apology came and she says, it wasn't my fault. So I wonder, I mean, part of me wonders with Aunt Lydia is where does she see her responsibility? And does she, 
does she feel that she's just been given a lot in life now and she's playing playing the role in the best way that she can because she's evil gina like you know i mean like so much of i feel her relationship with most of the handmaidens is kind of like a Stockholm syndrome of sorts, right? That this is your captor, but you've also made peace with the fact that this is your captor and you're going to have to make nice with your captor to get, I don't know, certain freedoms. That's true. I also wonder now that we're talking about it, and I've never thought of this before, what if Aunt Lydia's choices were go to the colonies and become an unwoman or be an aunt? Right. Because often she and June have an unusual relationship that kind of ebbs and flows between something substantial and not. And right. then remember when she- And then loving and like weird and loving at some point, right? Yeah. And then remember when she found out June was pregnant and she goes up to this bell tower to ring the bell, the which bell. I guess they yes. do. I, and her face had this look of like anguish and she was kind Ecstasy. of laughing. Yes. Crying. Yeah. I don't know. I hope we find out more about her in season three. Yeah. And I, but I think you're, I mean, It'll be interesting if we do get kind of her backstory, but she, she has also made it clear that she has the capacity to care for the girls at the same time, absolutely terrorize them. And I think a lot of that is like very similar to, you know, horror stories that you have friends here from like the Catholic church or so like the horrors, I, friends of mine and family who have grown up in Catholic school have this love hate relationship with certain nuns. And it's very similar to that. Um, like talking to my mom about her Catholic school experience is very different than talking to my cousins who are our age um, versus like talking to my cousin's kids about um, their Catholic school experience. Mm. Um, and some of it is really around um, how much the doctrine of organized religion is like a part of their upbringing um, or their schooling. Um, and, you know, I mean, religion in these women's lives are such a big part. It's like almost another person, right? It's another yeah. character in the story, right? And so I think like even Aunt Lydia has this love-hate relationship with the doctrine that she's supposed to support. But I all, but I think, I mean, based on what the questions that you're like, you sent me, Gina, 
It really is all about power. It's not even about religion, right? It's about there's this society that has been set up that's super hierarchical. And so because women have so little power in this established society, it's what the, how mean can they be to other people to ensure that they hang on to what little power that they have. Yeah. And she has a lot of power, Aunt Lydia. Yeah. She ha- she can write. Like she gets yeah. to, she gets to write words, which is I think Serena Joy was basically going to vomit when she saw her with a pencil like she was right. just lusting after the pencils, you know, as a former authoress and working woman it's funny well and not only that about how liberal aunt lydia can be even with the commanders um you know and she has access to talk to them outside in, in normal life within the context then of um you know giving um commander advice on how to deal with Serena and with June. Yeah. That's so weird. Um, on a scale of one to 10 with one being the furthest away from a Gilead society, mm-hmm. 10 being the closest, where do you think we are right now? That's a phenomenal question. Um, I think the answer uh, is it depends on where you are within a socioeconomic, like our current socioeconomic scale, right? Because I think so much of what many of us hope is that like meritocracy still matters. So the fact that you and I went to a women's college matters because we have a degree to a certain amount and so we're smart women. But I think, you know, in certain circles where it really is an old boy network still, um, you and I don't matter, right? So I I think there are pockets of areas of our country and society that are more Gilead-esque than not. So, I mean, I think overall, we're probably like a two or a three for the whole country. But then when you go to certain places in certain smaller communities I you know um, whether it's northern New England or um, communities in the south that I'm aware of um, like Bible Belt communities also um, like there's some communities I know about in Huntsville that are in the Huntsville Alabama area that are very uh, very much patriarchally driven where uh girls are asked to leave school after their ninth grade year oh man right and 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 it's funny because like these are communities that when i used to be the ed for country dance and song society like they use a lot of the materials um the you know and they use english country dance and the civility around um, Jane Austen balls, 
as a way to, uh, you know, have women have fun, but keep them in check. Wow. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is really weird. That's really weird. So we're going to talk a little bit about women behaving badly, which I think yep. we got off to a roaring start with Aunt Lydia. <laughs> Because she is the worst. Well, one of the worst. Yes. Um, so let's talk about Serena Joy a little bit. And Serena Joy is the wife of Commander Waterford. And right. she is in the upper echelons of this society. And ironically, while she has no... Well, it's against the law for her to read or write now. She played a pivotal role uh, in creating Gilead. She wrote right. a domestic feminist manifesto that served as a foundation. And I don't know. Do you think Gilead was her true intent behind that? I think... Um... She always, I think she thought she would always be a partner to her husband. I don't think she thought it would devolve into the reality that became her current reality. Um, because, and I, th and I think we know that is because one, she continues to lash out in the same way that like, you know, Aunt Lydia lashes out to June, right? I mean, she physically assaults June at several times, oh, yeah. treats her like a slave. And then there was that like weird moment when um, she invited June's friends and they all sat down and had a party and they were talking about, I think it was the Magnolia Bakery that, you know, oh, what was that place that had the best food? And the only person who remembered was Serena. And Serena's like, wow, you know, we might have been there at the same time. Like, yeah. And, and for someone, and so I think, I don't think Serena took into account the classism that would happen out of this. And, um, what it would really mean to be subservient to men as a whole. Um, mm. I mean, because she was just as, I mean, she was shocked and terrified when she lost her finger. I mean, she didn't see that coming, right? I mean, and she was like, we need to do this for our kids. And, and then you saw she willingly gave up Nicole at the end um, and said, yes, take the baby, take the baby to Canada. Yeah, she was very defeated. And I mean, it came after this point in time where Fred was in the hospital because of the terrorist attack. Right. And she and June were working together um, to, to basically carry on his work. Yeah. yeah to, to, like, basically, in many ways, what would could have been in a different life 
her next book, right? <laughs> like, um, and yeah, and I think, but I also think uh, it also just really goes to show um, how short Commander Waterford's memory is too. Because from the flashback scenes, we really saw how integral she was into bolstering his career, bolstering his persona um, when, you know, he felt that he wasn't up to the task. She was right there for him. Um, and then uh, he really just dismissed all of what she could have continued to do for him um, now that Gilead is Gilead. Yeah, I mean, in those flashbacks, she is the key speaker, key focal point, Correct. getting her message out. And he's like her PR assistant. Exactly. Yeah, no, he's the front man, right? He's the front man for this rock star superstar. Yeah. But I, you know, so I think, but it also just goes to show when you're pushed up against the wall, while we would all think we would act well and like we would act in a way that would be compassionate and kind and that we would fight for the resistance. It also just shows that, you know, some people become part of the system that they hate. Um, and I mean, Serena knows that, like, I, I mean, like, I always thought about this. I mean, like, did they teach the wives on how to have servants and like, dude, but those wives management training so that they knew how to manage their Marthas or, you know what I mean? Like, when did that happen? And clearly, I mean, it's the leap of faith of like a mini series. Yes, I know. <laughs> but just it's part of it is like, how did she know how to do that? And a lot of it, I like project my own upbringing of having been in um, as, as an expat kid in foreign countries growing up where we had domestic servants, right? And so a lot of Gilead actually does still exist in a lot of former colonialist countries are actually trained on how to be a wife and how to manage their households. Interesting. And it becomes like a class thing um, too. So, um, and then like the equivalent of like the head cooks or, you know, head household managers, like the equivalent of Martha's, like in the Philippines, there, there are schools that train you on how to be a head cook or the head household manager. You know, um, since they have the red center for handmaids, it wouldn't surprise me if they have a school for Martha's right school for the wives some kind of training but that we just haven't seen it yet right yeah but so. then you know there was that flashback so when um june was running away um and one of the drivers brought her to his house and so you had this whole other side of like you know if 
you weren't a handmaiden, if you weren't a Martha and you were just a regular person that had a family um, and you were like, I guess it would be the equivalent of middle class or lower middle class, right? And this is what a normal family looks like. And even the disdain in that household for how could you be a handmaiden and give up your kid was shocking also. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I think they call them econo wives. Right, like, yeah. And I don't, I mean, and this is where I think this society is super crafty. Like to the outside world, it seems like handmaids volunteered for this, at, like, right. like military service. Right. And it almost seems like unless if you're not a handmaid, it seems like you've been brainwashed to believe that this is something they want to do too. Right. Um, and yeah. And the, and it just really also begs the question of how, do you have a sense of like how fast or how slow or over how much time it took to then like, how does this, the rest of the society fall into like the econo wives system like does that mean because then there was also the commander one of the newer commanders we met at the end an african-american commander we met at the end of season two um had a wife that wasn't infertile so did so, it need to use a handmaiden i think what that was remember when they had the super weird child bride mass marriage ceremony. Right, right. Was he one of those people? I think he was, I mean, they're not all eyes, but they're like the right-hand man to commanders. Okay. I think he was one of them, and he got his wife pregnant, and that And then is, he was promoted to yeah, a commander? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but like seriously, I mean, Karan is thirteen, so you know the Nick, the driver's wife, was fifteen, right? So yeah, I just can't imagine my daughter like training now to then be married off at fifteen. No, yeah. yeah, yeah, she would like freak out and rebel, but you know, I mean, that's a whole other thing. Like you know, then that young person choosing quote-unquote love over the institution of marriage that she was forced into and still got drowned for it yeah like there's no room other than what is dictated by society yeah and she was you know it wasn't only that she fell in love with the guard but she was reading the bible and right notes like, and correct yeah yeah. I mean, and so, you know, that, that goes to the other thinking of like, I bet, you, you know, I'm sure in certain castes of India still, there, it would be perceived to be very Gilead-like. Because if you're born into a certain lot in life, this is all you have access to. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I think there are still similar societies like that for sure um one of the things that 
I read an article from the the guy who's producing this and of course Atwood's heavily involved and right he said you know we've been accused of creating torture porn and he said there's nothing that happens in this show that is not happening somewhere in this world correct absolutely um and happens often every day i mean it, it not just like once in a blue moon kind of thing like this stuff happens all the time. I mean, you know, what's also really interesting is me watching this um, from the perspective also as being an adoptive mom mm. also has really interesting, like I was thinking about that or just, you know, thinking about, well, you know, we do have a foster care system. We do have surrogacy in this country that exists already. Um, and that there's also travel surrogacy that for people who want to pay for surrogacy cheaper and to happen more quickly, um, there are women who go to India and China and Thailand, you know, to, to do this. Um, so the whole notion of kind of giving up one's child or making a plan that's different because, uh, there were there, there's an issue of infertility um is also an interesting kind of piece to all of that yeah so why don't we shift away from gilead for a little bit yep and talk about how women behave badly in our society every day <laughs> Like, and, and I don't mean the know. rock stars that are out no. there, like, smashing the patriarchy. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So it's funny. So, you know, Karana always asks, Mom, is it going to get, like, is the mean girl thing going to get easier in high school or college? Or do grownups have to deal with this, too? And I'm like, kiddo, yes. Like, there are just women who do not support other women and will work really hard to be mean, bitchy, and just undermine other women. Um, and that just sucks. And that's just the reality of kind of like what it's like. I mean, Gina, how many bad bosses have you and I had? Yeah, there've been a, a few. <laughs> Right. And like, you know, so like when I, it's funny because like when I talk about this, especially to um, young women, and I say, I'm like, you know, so racism is real, misogyny is real. But I said, I've always shared the one place where misogyny was the worst for me was working at a women's educational environment where just the women were not supportive, period. Um, and that just sucks because you would think that would be the one place where uh, women would work together to elevate each other instead of tear each other down. I don't know. There have been times where, I don't know, I got into it with one of my bosses once. Um, 
a girl I was managing was up for promotion and I found out what she had been making and what her salary would be after. And I knew that a boy, a boy, a man <laughs> that we'd brought in at the same level was making, I don't know, like uh, at least $10,000 more than she was. And I just wow. said, I don't care how good he is at this one thing she's the whole package and she's just as valuable if not more than he is right and I remember my boss was like oh my gosh are you saying that we pay unfairly blah 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 and I said listen I don't know how people negotiate their salaries when they come in but I do know the value of an employee and she's worth more to me than he is. And I think we should pay, be paying her just as much, if not more. Um, and I think she was shocked because she's a woman's woman, or at least. Right. right. Um, but I've seen women who think they're supportive of women still treat other women pretty badly sometimes. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Um you know, it's funny, um, in the same education environment, in the, it was only three, two or three years ago where they changed the HR manual to remove the requirement for wearing pantyhose. Oh, wow. It was an actual requirement that, you know, pantyhose were to be worn no open-toed shoes and women were not allowed to wear jeans on campus no mention of like no jeans allowed specifically women were not allowed to wear jeans on campus and they just like like what kind of double standard is that yeah. right and so yeah um I, and you know, the leader of that institution is a well-beloved person in this area who champions women's rights and who champions, you know, mentorship for women. But her brand of it is such that it's still really stifling and not very inclusive or equitable, really, across the board. Hmm. Yeah, I do. I mean, and this is, I think, something that, you know, we had the Women's March and that movement is happening. It's fragmenting a little bit just for a lot of sad, different reasons. Right. But I do think there is this pressure. Did you see this? Um, Pixar put out a little animated film called Pearl. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it represents this little ball of yarn in a male-dominated Workplace. I thought it was brilliant, totally brilliant, because it talks about how women have come this far, a lot of us, by emulating the behavior of men to fit in. Right. And then I think for many women, they're too far gone by the time another woman comes into the fold. And it Correct. is that... Oh, instead of being like, oh, I have company now. Maybe we can work together to change some things. It's, 
you know, oh, whatever. She either needs to figure out a way to fit in like I did or she'll hit the road. Right, right. Or it's because this is how I made it, meaning I had to grow a pair of balls like the rest of the guys. That means you have to do the same in order to get to where I am. Yeah. And there's no way to... I mean, and that's just institutionalizing the misogyny instead of deconstructing it or finding a way to just not have it be there at all and, and, you know, tackle leadership in a more authentic way um, for just a different person. Yeah. Um, What do you think of, like, who are some of the women behaving badly in the public eye right now? Well, shall shall we start with, well, not woman, but like, you know, what do we want to say about NASA not having sizes of spacesuits? I mean, you know, it's so funny because I also have um, not a woman behaving badly, but a woman behaving wonderfully. I have a friend and colleague who is developing... um, sports tops for women archers because the tops of archers are for there's no room for boobs so like what do you do if you have boobs and you're an archer like the equipment doesn't make room for that and that was her aha moment when you know she became a mom and was nursing and she couldn't find equipment to make room for the fact that she had bigger boobs now and wasn't the stick that she was before. Wow. Right? And it's yeah. one of those things I'm like, I would never have thought about that. I'm not an archer, you know, but that just goes to that piece. But like, I don't know, women behaving badly. Um, I could go on and on about Elaine Chow and how I don't want to claim her as not only a Mount Holyoke alum, but an Asian American Mount Holyoke alum. Um, Along those lines, I'm no longer, not that I ever did claim her, is Ivanka Trump went to the same high school that I did, so that kind of sucks. I mean, because those two women are complicit on so many levels, um, and yet they also represented so much, but especially like Elaine Chow, because so many people look to her as being a woman and a woman of color and that she has access. And then for her to behave badly with that access just like sucks so much more. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. No, it totally does. And it's so funny because, well, I mean, Ivanka, of course, but I used to, you know, back in the days of The Apprentice, I kind of thought she was the smartest one in the room. Well, exactly. That's what I thought too. And I'm like, oh, she's the smartest one in the room. Of course she went to choke. Like, you know, now I'm like, oh, God, she went to choke. Like, we, we can't claim her. <laughs> yeah. You know. But, you know, it's it's funny because even <laughs> some of the Democratic women who are running right now, um, I mean, Kristen Gillibrand, right. I kind of liked her. And then you hear that she was sitting on a sexual harassment issue within her own staff. Right. And I mean, Amy Klobuchar, come on. Yeah, that, that's a whole, 
and you know i wonder i mean it be, all becomes an issue of like shit are there any women in power that i would admire i mean right now i'm all about kamala harris um because i think she's brilliant <laughs> um and you know she's another person of not just person of color but you know she has a multiracial heritage which i speaks to me but I get, a lot of it is i wonder though is there something to be said like dave chappelle said this well when you get to like a certain point in your career and you have a certain sense of not just success but actual notoriety like he thinks that everyone goes crazy <laughs> you know he called it the mariah carey effect and i wonder if that is true like at some point when you have that much money that much privilege is there some disconnect that happens from just reality at some point? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, I think back, and I mean, Hillary Clinton is not a perfect person. And she's not a terribly warm person. Right. But I don't feel like I ever heard stories about her, well... <laughs> being abusive to other women. There are well, stories think, where she's been unsupportive as in everyone that yeah. came out of, you know, right. came out and accused her husband of boinking him. Right. But yeah. Yeah. But see, he, but I guess, you know what it is too, is with Hillary too, she presented herself as who she was. Like this, you know, I mean, I don't, I would not be surprised if she did a lot of dubious things, True. but, but like she didn't present herself as a holier than thou person. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And she's also, um, she comes across as very even keeled. Right. Right. Like there's not at least there hasn't been a huge range of public emotion from her. Right. It kind of feels measured. Like I think right. she pulls off tough and fair better than a lot of women do because, right. you know, she's, well, because she's that experience. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that's the piece of it. And, and you know, like, I think I would also put Nancy Pelosi in that same, she's, she comes across like Maxine Waters and Nancy Pelosi come across as women who I would not be surprised if there's skeletons in their closet because they've just had to do what they've had to do. But I think how they present themselves are women of a certain caliber of experience that, uh, is that even keel approach but they are who they are they don't present themselves as something that they're not which which is i think what you were going with with you know um kristen gillibrand just some of the other women are trying hard to be likable um and that translates in different ways 
versus being qualified. Mm. Yeah, well, and I do think there's a real struggle for authenticity in politics. Yeah. Right. And yes. the fact that the person who's president right now was elected because he's so authentic, I'm using some <laughs> air quotes there. Right. It was a huge wake up call to people. I mean, right. Obama was very authentic too, but I think there's yet to be a woman that feels like she can let her guard down enough right. to show who she really is and right. show that she's qualified. Correct. I mean, like, you know, to that end, I think if you look at the language that the Democratic women candidates have chosen, um, that they will fight, um, they use really powerful non-gendered language, um, but then it's, you know, the black guy candidate, you know, Cory Booker can say he wants to lead with love. Like if women use language hey gina did i lose you yeah you did for a minute you and you were okay. making a good point about Cory Booker <laughs> leading with love and i'm like this is gonna be yes. gold and then it was like Wark. okay so the language that the women used are very non-gendered but yet powerful language that they'll lead the charge you know they're gonna take charge, be powerful, and then also be fighters um, for the American people. Can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah. But Cory Booker, you know, had this great campaign where he gets to lead his campaign through love. If the women had done that, they, they'd be crucified of, and accused of being too feminine and not strong enough to be a leader. No, I can 100% agree. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know what's really interesting with the time frame that we're in is I wonder what it would, I wonder how Handmaid's Tale would play in a non-Trump presidency. You know, that is a very good question because they were producing this Bef you know, it was green-lighted and everything else. Right. Probably before he was even officially running. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if it's just the time that we're in that this is resonating and hitting deep with women and just our society as a whole in a very different way because the whole story is set up that no one was awake for any of this stuff to turn around and happen. And would we really have thought we would have um, a Trump presidency and, and have it continue this far into his presidency? Um, and then, you know, hearing what the Mueller report may or may not say, um, is that a surprise then, too, as, as part of all of the backdrop to this? Yeah, I think you're right, because 
you know, I mean, even after he was elected and this show aired, it was probably a good six months before I could bring myself to watch it because I was so angry and right. Know. Um, I also think his choice of vice president. <laughs> yes. I mean, please, if there is anyone in this current administration that is commander material, it's Mike Pence. You know, when did Margaret Atwood write this? And why is it so timely today? She wrote it in 1985. Right. <clears throat> and so, you know, I mean... That's my point. Like she wrote it in the eighties and I remember like it was a big deal when it came out, but it, for it to resonate the way it's resonating now um, is, is just weird and spooky and timely um, all, all in just really different ways. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because this isn't the first time they've told the story on screen. They did a movie. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> It, and it's funny because it's like watching, I, I remember the movie, remember watching the movie and again, like it was a different time in a different place. And yes, I was much younger, but this story within this time that we're in, in our country, uh, resonates in a gut soul level, um, that the book and the first movie did it. Yeah. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining Resisting Gilead. If you have any feedback about this podcast or about The Handmaid's Tale that you would like to share that we might be able to feature in an upcoming podcast, please shoot me an email at resistinggilead at gmail.com and we'll take all your commentary into consideration. Thank you so much and don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs>